Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. One of the ways I, or one of the things that I do rather, when I am studying God's Word or reading something or even uh, writing uh, the sermon out, I often have music playing uh, in my headphones. It just kind of, uh, it's just the way I do things where I can just block out every other sound and it's just music playing. Sometimes it's instrumental music and sometimes it's um, some of the songs that we sing at church and other times other Christian songs. And uh, this past week, uh, one song that I kept listening to, uh, I, I want to read some of the words of that song. It's a song that we sing often, uh, even in our church. Uh, it's called All Glory Be to Christ. I just want to read to you just um, some of the words of that song just by way of introduction. Should nothing of our effort stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing, all glory be to Christ. You know, one of the things... um, that is important for us to keep in our minds is even as a song reminds us um, is and it should be our prayer Lord may nothing of our effort nothing of our legacy survive unless you are doing a work in and through it And, you know, sometimes it's good to ask the question, but why? Well, you know, why is it important that nothing of our efforts would survive? Well, first and foremost, I would say, because that is plain reality. Because as the song reminds us, and as it gets that from the Word of God, that man is nothing. It's just simply a mist that is here now and gone tomorrow. And yet, God is not like that. He's not a mist that just comes and goes. He is forever. And so whatever God does has or remains, it has an eternal impact. And it just, it just won't go off because it is his work. You know, and, and we must remember that and we must remember as we live our lives that we live not for ourselves, that we live for God and his glory. And in all that we do as well, that we would pray to that end, Lord, for your glory, for your glory alone and not for our sake. And if you remember, it is also the, you know, how God has created us. Remember as we've been going through this Genesis series, you know, we've been reminded time and again that God created man not for himself, but he created man in the image of God 
And so what is the end of man? It is so man would image God and glorify God and enjoy God this way and making much of him. And then you say, okay, if that's, if that's man's chief end, what is God's chief end? And I would say that that is exactly God's chief end as well, to make much of him and to display his glory. Now for us who you know, don't understand an existence or, or, or even a being in a full sense that has no sin, when we think, oh, you have this being that is all about himself and displaying his glory. And we sometimes are, you know, are hurt our hearts kind of cringe at that. But what we need to realize is that that is what God does. But we need to realize, again, during those times that God is a perfect being. There is no sin in him. He's the very source of life and goodness and love and mercy and kindness and justice and, and righteousness. And so for a perfect being to display that is the best thing to do. Because you think about it. What is the other option? For God to take some other imperfect thing and to display that? Or for us to be in the center of the universe and for us to display our glory? No. It will always fall short. Because we're not perfect like God. So it is good and right that God exalts himself and glorifies himself and displays his glory and that we also as his creatures uh, you know, see that as our end. That that is our good, to make much of God and glorify God. In fact, ultimately when we do that, we experience the fullness of joy as well. You know, we must keep this in mind because even in the Christian life, sometimes, you know, as we talk about different things, sometimes because of sin, because of difficulty, we can invariably displace that thinking that God should be in the center and it's all about his glory. And suddenly we can still bring ourselves back. Oh, God must do this for me because, why? Because apparently I'm in the center of the world and God needs to bow down to me. Or oh, this shouldn't happen like this because everything has to go my way. No, we, we must as children of God and people who've been awakened and opened to the glory of God and who see the goodness of God, that God's glory is the highest good. Therefore, it is right for God to exalt himself and it is right for us to live for his glory and making much of him. We must come back to that. Because if we don't, we will simply live for ourselves and we will dishonor God and that will ultimately lead to our ruin. And we'll see some of that even this morning as we go through God's curse on the serpent. Now these past few weeks, especially, we've been going through Genesis 3 and we've been looking at the things that surrounded the fall. We saw how first Satan came and possessed this serpent and he deceived the woman and then the woman gave the fruit, the forbidden fruit to the man and they both fell. 
And, and what happened as a result is exactly as God said, if you eat this fruit, you will surely die, exactly happened. Because from the moment that they ate the f- forbidden fruit, they spiritually died. There was a blindness that came over them. And sin came and tainted their entire being. And then we saw how some of the effects of, of, the, of the fall that, that happened as a result, where shame and guilt and a sense of condemnation, all that they, they, they felt as a, as a result of the fact that they were uh, sinful. And yet we saw that as God came to them, they had a distorted view of God. And, uh, and instead of running go- to God, who himself could save them, they hide from God. Because now they're seeing only the justice of God and not his goodness, not his kindness, not his mercy, and not his love, which is all that he has been to them up till this point. And then we saw how God still graciously pursues the man and the woman and questions them for them to confess their sin, to to own up to their sin as a way in which uh, you know, they can be reconciled to God. But you see, even in that, their blindness, how they really are spiritually dead. Because they don't own up to their sin. Because they, they do the blame game. You know, the, the, the man points to the woman, or, or the woman, and he even has the audacity to blame God. God, the woman you gave me. No, ultimately, it's your fault, man says in his blindness, in his spiritual deadness. And then even the woman, she says, oh, it's not my fault, it's ultimately the serpent's fault. But there is, you know, at the end of it, while there's almost a denial of their sin, because of God's gracious intervention there, we see that at least, in a very small sense at least, they admit to their sin. Yes, I ate the fruit. Both of them admit to that. Now, in light of all that has happened, now God addresses the third party in this. The, 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 the force that was there right behind it. The serpent and Satan himself. And he's going to pronounce a curse on the serpent. And really in verses 14 and 15, there's two parts to this curse. The first part of the curse, which is in verse 14, is an address to the animal itself, the the serpent itself. It's a curse on the animal in itself. And the second part of the curse, that's in verse 15, is addressed to the the supernatural force behind the animal, that is Satan himself. And often this is seen in prophetic literature as well. A lot of the prophetic, a lot of the prophecies you'll see, you'll see at first uh, there's a certain object that is uh, where judgment is poured out on, and then finally the ultimate source behind that object is then addressed and condemned as well. So let's just look at this and see what we can learn about God and how we are to respond 
uh, in light of how God revealed himself to be from these two verses as he curses the serpent. First of all, in verse 14, the punishment of the serpent. Verse 14 starts by saying, And the Lord God said to the serpent. Now the first thing that you'll notice here is that unlike with the man and the woman, God doesn't question the serpent. And you say, why? Because remember, God in questioning Adam and Eve, he did that so that they would be conscious of their sin and they would confess their sin. And so in light of that, so God could bring about his plan of saving them. But with the serpent, there is no questioning whatsoever. Why? Because Satan is not part of God's plan of redemption. See, Satan and the other fallen angels, they're evil. They've rebelled against God and now they're seeking to uh, do away with man as well, to cause man to rebel against God. So they're evil through and through. Satan is evil through and through. He has no goodness of God in him. And as we read from Hebrews 2 this morning in our Bible reading, it says, God does not help these angels. Now you say, but, but why? Why does he not help fallen angels? Well, because God has decided it to be that way. Because God is sovereign and he has determined that these fallen angels and Satan himself will not be redeemed. And they too, as they are in this state, will be for his glory. You know, I'm reminded of uh, Romans 9 where it says, where God himself says, I will have quoting from the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and and that is God's own prerogative. So then when you think about mankind, we should really appreciate what it is that God has done in our lives. See, because it is only and only because of God's grace and mercy that did he have a plan to save wretched sinners like you and me. It has nothing to do ultimately with you. It has nothing to do ultimately with me. It is purely because he decided to show his grace and mercy and his love toward us. So God doesn't ask the serpent any questions. The serpent has rebelled against God and now has led the man and the woman astray. And now God simply addresses the serpent, giving him no chance to say anything at all or make up any excuses. God says, no, you will be quiet, serpent, and I will speak because I am in charge, because I am the sovereign one. And notice what God says. Verse 14 again, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, done what? 
because you have deceived the woman, causing her to sin, and in turn, Adam. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. God curses the serpent. See, God's curse is the very opposite of his blessing. It's that state of living where God is opposed to you and God's judgment is on you. As one theologian put it, a cursed life is a negative reflection of the kind of life that one was intended to live under God. I think that's a good way of putting it. See, if, if, if the blessed life is the kind of positive life that God intended for that person to live, the cursed life, on the other hand, is a negative reflection of the kind of life that one was intended to live under God. And it says, God cursed the serpent above all the livestock and the beasts of the field. Meaning all other animals, the domestic and the non-domestic wild animals. Of all the animals, the serpent was especially cursed. Now we definitely see the effects of the curse and the fall in the rest of the animal kingdom. You know, we see it even now, whether it's anything from birth defects to uh, all kinds of other problems to ultimately even all animals dying. It's all part of the curse and, and the fall. But of all the animals, domestic and undomestic, and all the wild animals, of all the animals, the serpent was especially cursed. The animal which was described as being more shrewd and crafty than all the animals, that animal which used its shrewdness for evil purposes as a result, making the man and the woman fall and rebel against God, that animal, God especially now curses. One theologian comments on this saying, as the cleverness of the serpent distinguishes it from the other animals, the curse for that trickery distinguishes the serpent from them as well. So before it was distinguished as the most shrewd or the most crafty of all animals. Now the serpent will be distinguished as the most cursed of all animals. Now some of you might be thinking, but the animal, I mean the serpent, it was just an instrument. I mean Satan was the real culprit, the supernatural force behind the serpent. Then why is the serpent being cursed? Well, now let's just think about this. The, the animals, yes, it is true, uh, you know, they don't have a sense of morality. They don't have that sense of right and wrong in, uh, in that sense, in the way human beings have, because they're not made in the image of God. But we must remember this. God created animals for the benefit of man and to serve under man. That was his order. 
Man is the crown of God's creation. And man was to be over all of God's creation. That's God's design. That's God's purpose. That's God's order. So when an animal causes harm to man, who is the crown of his creation, who is his own image, then there's a perversion of that order that God has set up. And so there will be strict judgment. In fact, this principle is even laid out in some, some of the things that are said in the laws. Uh, look at Exodus 21, 8, where it says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox will be stoned. And so similarly, because the animal, that is this serpent, was instrumental in leading the crown of God's creation, that is, the man and the woman, was responsible for leading them away and causing them to sin, God now curses the serpent. That's how strongly God feels about his rule and his order. And then the rest of verse 14 describes the describes how this curse, what the curse is on the serpent. Look at verse 14 again. God says, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. On your belly you shall go. Now, if you remember, as mentioned a few weeks ago, you know, we looked, I briefly mentioned this. This would imply that before the serpent was killed, uh, was cursed, pardon me, it did not crawl on its belly. At, at least that much we can tell. Because in cursing the serpent, God is saying, now on your belly you will crawl, implying before this you did not crawl on your belly it would have most likely moved in a more upright position. And some theologians have even said that it would have had legs too before the curse. But now that it is cursed, it drops from this position, it drops on the ground. And now it's going to crawl on its belly. One theologian commenting on this says, God was telling Adam, Eve, Adam, Eve, and the serpent how things are going to change because of sin. And those changes would affect every order of creation, including snakes. It is not a speculation to conclude that the snake lost its ability to walk on the day that Adam fell. It is fitting that the, that the agent that caused mankind to fall was cursed this way. And there was a change brought about in that animal. So there was a definite change in the way that the serpent would move from now on. And then, and God even adds, the serpent not only crawls, but it would eat dust all the days of its life. You know, I only discovered this week as I was doing some reading and particularly reading some of the uh, creation ministry stuff, just trying to do some research on this. 
that snakes actually do eat dust. Not for, not in the sense of having dust as food, but they eat dust to sense their surroundings. You see, snakes generally have poor eyesight. So to sense its surroundings, the snake darts its tongue in and out. And in doing so, it deliberately eats dust or licks dust and takes it in. And these particles of dust that the snake takes in or eats is then you know, presented to, there's a special organ in the upper part of the roof of the mouth of the snake. It's presented, these dust particles are then presented to this specialized organ there on the roof of the mouth of the serpent. And it, it smells the particle and even tastes the particle that way. And then it's able to identify what kind of particle it is and therefore what kind of surrounding it's in. So the snake actually does eat the dust deliberately to sense its surrounding, to figure out what it is because it's got a poor eyesight. So now because of the curse, God is saying, the snake has to crawl on its belly, that's one. And then on top of that, it literally eats dust to identify its surroundings as it, as it crawls on the ground. And even this idea of being brought low to the ground and eating dust, you know, it's, it's an expression of humiliation and even total defeat in the rest of Scripture. You know, Psalm 22.9, speaking of the king's enemies, it says, May desert tribes bow down before him, brought low, and his enemies lick the dust. Micah 7.17, And they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. So the curse on the, so the, curse on the serpent is being, that being brought low to the ground and then now crawling on the ground and, and licking dust. It's a picture of humiliation and defeat. The serpent who tried to lift itself high over mankind and even over God has now been brought low. And it's a symbol of shame and defeat. And this is important because the serpent in the Bible is predominantly, it's, it's a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of Satan. It's you could say the, the mascot of Satan. So the picture of the serpent crawling on the ground and licking the dust, it's a picture of what God is going to do eventually with Satan. Where Satan himself will be humiliated and defeated by God. In fact, according to the curse, God says, the serpent will be eating dust for all of its days. That it's going to be a perpetual thing. The serpent is going to be a perpetual symbol of the Satan's defeat. And you know what the interesting thing is? 
that this will even be the case in the millennial kingdom. You know, in Isaiah 65, uh, it talks about, parts of it talks about the millennial kingdom. And in the millennial kingdom, many aspects of the curse will be lifted, including some of the um, characteristics of the animals. And notice what verse 25 says. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. So obviously, you know, they're they're back to being herbivores from before the curse. That there's no, uh, you know, the wolf is not eating the lamb. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. So the the lion is back to being a herbivore. And then notice what it says. And dust shall be the serpent's food. So even in the millennial kingdom, while many of the characteristics of the animals will become like what it was before the fall, the serpent will continue to crawl and be low to the ground, licking dust. It will be a perpetual reminder, a picture for all the world of the humiliation and the defeat that will come upon Satan. So the next time you see a serpent, the next time you see a snake, it should be a reminder to you as well that this is what God is going to do to Satan and his minions. And really, it's even the, 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 the snake crawling on the ground and licking dust. It's even a picture of everyone. It's not just Satan and his minions, but basically everyone who follows Satan's pathway of opposing God and rebelling against God, they will all be brought low and ultimately be defeated by God. And it should be a stern reminder for all of us. Now moving on from the actual animal, that is the serpent, we now move to the supernatural force behind the serpent, that is, Satan himself in verse 15. And here we come to our second point, and I'm going to spend the majority of our time in this verse. And here, the second point is this, the promise of warfare and victory over Satan. God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Let me just stop there. There are a few things that God is saying here in verse 15. First, God is saying this. In the present, right now, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Think about it. I mean, Satan has been successful in leading the man and the woman away from God and away from God's word and and from under his rule into rebellion and into sin. So as far as Satan is concerned, he has succeeded. He has toppled over God's order and rule. 
He has brought the man and the woman from under God's rule over to his side. And now even the coming generations too would be won over to his side away from God because he's already been successful with the first couple. So it seemed like Satan had totally foiled God's plan. It seemed like the entire human race was going down, going to be on Satan's side. And it really seemed like Satan had won. But now God intervenes and says, No, Satan, you haven't won. I am still king. And I am the ruler of this universe. I am still the sovereign one. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. See, the, the, the term here for enmity, it's a term to describe two parties that are hostile to each other. Two parties who are enemies and, and they are at war with each other. There's hostility between them. And God is saying, I will bring about a relational change between the woman and you, Satan. Satan, you will no longer be able to manipulate the woman and keep her on your side. No, instead of believing in you and trusting in you as a friend, as an ally, instead of listening to your word, I will bring about a change such that there is now an animosity and a hatred toward you. And this is not something that will naturally come about. No, I will make this happen. There will be a hatred toward you and invariably a love for me, God says. And this is my judgment. And really, this was this judgment upon Satan. On the one side, you see the justice of God. Because Satan is getting the sentence that is just and right for his rebellion. But on the other side, what we see is grace for mankind as he judges Satan. One commentator helpfully makes this statement. In sovereign grace, God will convert the depraved woman's affections for Satan to righteous desire for himself. Let me read that again. In sovereign grace, God will convert the depraved woman's affections for Satan to righteous desire for himself. And really, this is the first glimmer of hope for man, for man that is lost in sin. You see, if God left the man and the woman in this state, they would be forever lost in their sin. And they would forever be slaves of Satan. Satan would continue to deceive them in their lostness. And they would continue in their rebellion against God. And this would be the plight of the entire human race. But in cursing Satan, there is also a ray of hope for mankind. The first glimpse of the gospel, the good news. And it is this, that in condemning Satan, God would intervene 
and men and women lost in their sin would be so transformed that they will once again love God and hate Satan. This is something that God will do. God will actually bring about this transformation. And God makes it very clear that this transformation, it will go on from just beyond the present time between just the the woman that is currently there and the serpent. Because God adds that this enmity will be between the woman and you and between your offspring and her offspring. This conflict, this this warfare is going to move into the future between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. Now the term offspring, it can also be translated seed. And this is also an important word in the Bible. And it's, it's one of those words which can mean a single thing or a collective thing. Just even in the English, you know, you can say, here's a single seed, or you can even say, here's a truckload of seed. So one is in a collective sense, you say seed, and one in a, in a single uh, individual sense, you say seed. So you can use the same word for both. And so this, this word seed or offspring can, can mean a single entity like a child or a descendant or it can mean a collective like children or descendants or even family. So in this verse, seed or offspring, it really refers to both the single entity and the collective entity. And I hope that will become clear as we go through this a bit more. See, God says that the enmity will continue into the future between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Now you say, who's the offspring of the woman? The offspring of the woman are those who belong to the family of God. The believers those who are converted and love God and who have this transformation happen to them. Really, it's talking about the, the, the spiritual lineage, but ultimately coming from the woman. And the offspring of the serpent, who are they? They are those who belong to the family of Satan. Unbelievers those who are unconverted, those who continue to love self and and don't want to live under God's rule. And this would even include demons and even the Antichrist who will one day come to deceive the world, as the Bible says. So here's the thing. Those of us who are believers, we love God, don't we? And we love God's people. And we love living under God's word. We don't love Satan. We don't love the world or the world's system and its values that is under the power of Satan. We are opposed to it. 
Why? Have you ever wondered why? Because God is the one who put that enmity. And really, this, this is the basis of the spiritual warfare that God informs us about that we are to be engaged in. Remember uh, Ephesians 6.12, we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there's this constant battle that we are engaged in. And the reason that we are engaged in this constant battle for those of us who are believers, that we love God and we hate Satan and the world system that is influenced by Satan is not because, you know, that we were somebody special and we just somehow figured it out. No, it's because because of God's zeal for glory which came about in the form of judgment against Satan and in that process... We were beneficiaries. His mercy came down to us and this enmity towards Satan came and love for God happened and a transformation happened. Had nothing to do with us, but it had everything to do with God and His glory. I mean, think about it. Satan attacking mankind why does he do that see ultimately it's not even about mankind is it no it's about God because he wants to attack God and God's order and so God is saying no Satan you will not do that because I am the sovereign king and my glory will still stand, and what I have purposed will still stand. And therefore, you are going to be judged, and the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, for those who are from that spiritual lineage, there will be a transformation in them. And they will love me, and they will hate you. And I am the one who will do that. And you know, till the end of time, this will be how God's people will be. Where they love God and they will continue to oppose Satan and his ways. And you know, it's precisely because now Satan knows this. He knows this is his curse. All throughout history, Satan and his offspring, Satan and his seed have sought to harm and destroy God's people. Because he doesn't want them loving God. He doesn't want them to glorify God. Now in the Bible, the serpent is the mascot as I said before, or the, or the symbol of Satan and his offspring. And the term serpent itself, it's a generic term. In the Bible, the serpent can mean both a smaller creature like a snake, 
but it can also mean a, a larger creature, a larger reptile, like a sea dragon or leviathan. And we saw some of that a few weeks ago when we looked at the serpent in the garden. And Satan is portrayed as both, right? And we saw that as well a few weeks ago. In the garden, he's seen as this smaller creature, smaller reptile, which is also a serpent, which is a snake. But in Revelation 12 and 20, he's seen as this big reptile, as a sea dragon, as, as, a, as the Leviathan. Now, I bring that up because I want to add now by saying this. That when we look at the Bible also, when we see that there are people or individual persons or even nations, when they're being likened to snakes or even sea dragons, the Bible is giving us a clue that they are the offspring of the serpent. Let me just show you a few examples in the Bible. When you come to the book of Exodus, the main person who is opposed to God and his people is Pharaoh. And guess what? Pharaoh is portrayed as a serpent-like figure, as an offspring of the serpent. Ezekiel 29.3, Pharaoh is described as the great dragon of the Nile. Ezekiel 32.2 again describes Pharaoh as a sea dragon. And then even think about what Pharaoh wears the crown that he has, what's right at the front of his crown? It's the image of a snake. In fact, Egypt itself is uh, you know, referred to as Rahab in Isaiah 51.9. Egypt itself is, uh, where it's described as Rahab, it's likened to a sea dragon. And what is it implying? That Egypt was the place of the serpent and its offspring. And because the serpent and its, off, and its offspring do not like God and do not like the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, which are the godly line, right in Exodus 1, what do you see Pharaoh do? He commands that baby boys be killed, that they be thrown into the Nile River. And you say, why? Because behind the scenes, Satan doesn't want the godly line to continue. Then remember when Moses comes to Pharaoh, the first thing God goes after is the serpent. Because remember, what does, what does God tell Moses to do when he first sees Pharaoh? He says, I want you to put down your staff. And what does the staff become? A serpent. And that serpent eats up the other staff of the, the magicians uh, in Egypt. And really what God is saying by this is, so Pharaoh, you think you're the big serpent? You think you're supreme? No, my little serpents too can eat you up. I'm over you. 
And then, then remember in Numbers 21, as, as God rescues the people of Israel from Egypt, f- from this place of the serpent, he rescues them. They are in the wilderness. God has protected them and provided them. And then the people of Israel, they start complaining against God. God, no, why have you brought us here? It was so much better in Egypt. And then God judges them. How does he judge them? He sends serpents that would bite them and many of the Israelites died. You know, as one theologian commenting on this verse in Numbers 21.6 says, it's as if God is saying, you miss Egypt? Here you go. You're saying it was better in Egypt? Let me give you Egypt. Here's the serpent's. God is essentially saying, no, Egypt is not a better place. It's the place of the serpent and his offspring. It will not give you a better life. In fact, it will only lead to your ruin and death. Then, you know, even the enemy nations of God and his people are compared to serpents. Psalm 91, 13, Micah 7, 16 and 17, Jeremiah 8, 16 and 17, even comparing the nation of Babylon to poisonous snakes. So all that saying, these are all the offspring of the serpent, of the original serpent, of Satan himself. There are you know, lots of other examples in the New Test- Old Testament, but let me just move on to the New Testament. Coming to Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 9. You know, there's the picture of this great dragon and says this great dragon or this great sea dragon is the ancient serpent that is Satan himself. And then what does this great dragon do? Revelation 12, 13 onwards. You know, the picture is this. Satan, the, this big dragon this big serpent dragon, is seeking to devour a child that has been given birth to a woman. And in this prophetic literature, the woman here is the people of God, that godly line of God. And the child here that has been been born right now is Jesus Christ. And you think, okay, so... When exactly has this happened? So this is around the time of Jesus' birth. What comes to mind? It's the time of King Herod and when Jesus was born into the world as a babe. See, the same serpent that empowered Pharaoh to kill the godly line or attempted to kill the godly line In the New Testament now, it is King Herod who's portrayed as being empowered by the serpent. Herod was another major offspring of the serpent. And he tries to kill baby Jesus by ordering all the male babies in Bethlehem below two years to be killed. Almost reminding you of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. And even though he tried, just like Pharaoh, he wasn't successful. 
Then there's, uh, there's another one that we often miss that are being associated as offspring of Satan itself. Think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What does Jesus call them? Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers. Why? Because they too are the offspring of the serpent. In fact, Jesus another time very explicitly tells the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in John 8, 44, you are of the father devil. He couldn't be any more explicit than that. Yeah, you are offspring of that serpent, you brood of vipers. And we know that they were the ones who ultimately plotted to kill Jesus. And so while the people of God will oppose Satan and his minions and continue to love God and obey him because God has created this, this transformation and this enmity, Satan and his offspring hate the fact that this godly line is going on then they love God. And therefore, all throughout, this his, all throughout history, biblical history, and even now, they will, the seed or the offspring of the serpent will continue to seek to harm and destroy the godly people and the godly line of God, of the, of the woman. So in this curse, God says, there's going to be an ongoing opposition between the godly descendants of the woman and Satan and his godless offspring. And even though Satan will try to do away with this godly line, he will never be successful. And not just that, God says ultimately Satan himself will be defeated. And look, that's what the last part of verse 15 says. Just look at it. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice now the, the offspring just before, it was used in a collective sense. The offspring of the woman were the godly descendants from the woman. But now the offspring is referred to as he it's an individual, an individual that is identified as a male. And it says that this male descendant from the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. And the serpent shall bruise the heel of this individual male. But ultimately the serpent is going to be defeated. So the picture is this. You have this poisonous snake that is crawling on the ground. And this particular male descendant from the line of the woman will kill this snake as it crawls on the ground by crushing its head with his heel. But as he brings down this, his heel to crush the head of this serpent, this serpent is not going to just die quickly like that. It's going to try and attack back 
and he will bruise the heel of this male descendant. So in other words, while, while the serpent is going to be crushed, in the process, it's going to also injure this descendant from the woman. And think about it. A wound to the head, that's a fatal wound. But a wound to the heel, sure, it might hurt. It might cause pain and all kinds of damage. But it's not necessarily fatal. And this really is the gospel in its embryonic stage. Many theologians have called this the proto-euangelion. Proto meaning first, euangelion meaning gospel, first gospel. It's the promise of a man who is the offspring of the woman who will come and defeat Satan, but in the process, he will be injured. He will experience pain and suffering while he defeats Satan. Now we say, who, who is this man? Who is this particular descendant of the woman who will defeat Satan? Well, as you move on in Scripture, we are told this offspring will come from the tribe of Judah. That he will be a descendant of King David. That he will come as the eternal king who will reign forever and establish a forever kingdom. Then when we come to Isaiah, we see that this offspring is this described as one who will be born of a virgin. And it, it even hints at the fact that this offspring will both be a human being as well as God. And then Isaiah further describes this person as a suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, who will himself be perfect, but a man who will be hated by, God, hated by men who will be pierced and crushed and marred beyond human recognition. And he will bear the wrath of God for the sins of his people, but he will be raised from the dead and exalted on high for all the world to see. And as we keep turning the pages of Scripture, and as we come to the New Testament, we understand very clearly that this person is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate offspring of the woman that was promised, who will be the deliverer, who will be the savior, who will be the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a perfect sinless life, but hated by the world around him. He was beaten and tortured and then put on a cross by the offspring of the serpent. But Jesus did not resist because he knew he was doing the will of God his Father and this was the way he was going to defeat Satan. 
And on that cross, Jesus bore the just punishment of God's wrath for the sin of his people, and he died in their place. But then on the third day, he rose up because his offering was acceptable in God's sight. And he wasn't just only a human being, but he was God himself. And now Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of his Father. Hebrews 2, 13 and 14, we had this in our Bible reading this morning. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through the fear of death who are subject to lifelong slavery. So in, in one sense, Satan was defeated at the cross by what Jesus did. But in an ultimate sense, Satan will be defeated and thrown into the lake of fire after Jesus returns and reigns on this earth for a thousand years. And then he will be thrown into that lake of fire and sealed forever and his doom is completely sealed. And we read that very clearly in Revelation 27 to 10. So in closing... I want to remind you this, and I really want this to be at the forefront of your mind. In Genesis three fourteen to 15, God in its embryonic form declares the first gospel, the good news. But the thing that we need to understand is that the good news is ultimately about God and the fact that he wins and he always wins. See, even though Satan thought he won, Satan did not. It was actually all part of God's plan because God decided that he was going to display his glory by judging Satan for what he has done and to show his justice to Satan and his minions and his offspring. But we must keep in mind that at the center of the gospel, it is God himself. And that is the best news because God is righteous. God is good. And God will always be who he says he is and his plans and his purposes will not be thwarted and his glory will be displayed and nobody will be able to stop him. So what that means is that when we think of the gospel, we shouldn't put ourselves at the center of the gospel. Because think about it, verses 14 and 15 is the gospel in its embryonic stage. 
And it, it isn't directly about us. We're not in the center of it. No, why does God do what he, why does God curse Satan and why did he put this plan in motion? Ultimately, he set it so that his glory would be displayed. And we would do well to remind ourselves of this fact, even when we think of the gospel. That to have God in the center of it all is the supreme reality and it is what is right for God to do. And we should never try and bring ourselves in the middle of it. But does that mean we don't benefit? Of course we benefit. We are beneficiaries of it because God has decided to display his glory and decided to show his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his love toward us. And so even in this, he displays his glory. But then, then you have to ask the question, so why did God save us? Not ultimately so we can make much of ourselves. No, again, so that he would be glorified. Not to us, O Lord, but for your name and for your glory. I pray that even as I conclude, that we would truly, for those of us who have experienced his glory, for those of us who see the goodness of God and the rightness of God for him to do what he does, that we would more and more, therefore, make our lives more and more about him, about displaying him, about displaying his glory, about living according to his word and living for his honor. Or as Apostle John has said, that he would increase more and more and I would decrease. And, and, and here's the thing. Because we know God wins and he always wins and we are part of his family. You know, we can continue to live each day in light of that, no matter what happens, whether it's COVID, whether it's lockdowns, whether it's sin, whether it's some other life circumstance, we can still continue to live with joy. Because God will achieve his plan ultimately to display his glory. And guess what? You and I who are his children will be part, will be able to share in his glory. One day when Jesus comes back and he reigns on this earth and we will say, Amen, Amen, Amen to your rule and to you alone be the glory. And guess what? As we do that, it is also for our good. Because when we live according to this and we give him glory, it brings us joy. It brings us happiness. We are functioning according to how God created us originally. We're functioning according to the reason why God redeemed us and saved us. And so it brings us joy. And it brings us joy as it brings us joy. We give him greater glory. Why? 
Because we're saying, God, your rule, your design, your plan, it is all great and I'm satisfied in you. So may we, even as we think of the gospel and as we think about living the Christian life, always seek to make much of God and less of ourselves and in doing so that we would enjoy God more and more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great God you are. We thank you for reminding us once again that it is good for you to exalt yourself. It is good for you to glorify yourself because there is no evil in you. You are the supreme definition of goodness and greatness. You are the supreme definition of that which is love and mercy. You are the supreme definition of that which is righteous and just. And so it is only right that the most perfect thing would be displayed for all to see. But even more than that, Father, we thank you that as a result of that, you displayed your glory in that you showed your mercy and your kindness to us. And as we recognize as your children, as our eyes have been opened to the wonders of who you are and the great God you are and the perfect God you are, may we never live to exalt ourselves. May we never live to make much of ourselves and our efforts. But may we make much of you. And in doing so, we pray that you would satisfy us more and more in you. For this is why you created us. This is why you redeemed us. And this is our final reality when Jesus will return and he will reign on this earth and this will be a song. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for who you are. Help us to love you more and help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.